I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. You raise hay as part of your revenue stream, right. Dave Corbett. And certainly I've got a big hay field uh, where I am for our growing Bolingo beef herd. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is uh, one of those plants um, in our hay fields is mm-hmm. alfalfa. Right. Mostly grass because beef cattle don't need as intense the uh, percentage of alfalfa within right. that hay or in their structure. But did you know, Dave Corbett, that if we don't have honeybees, we don't have alfalfa? I did not know that. No. Yep. Hmm. It's one of those crops. It's one of those plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and trees and shrubs throughout our entire country and world that needs bees in order to pollinate and survive. Okay. So you don't have honeybees. If you don't have bees, you don't have alfalfa. Wow. And that would be, I, I can't even be- begin to think of what the repercussions would be to our dairy industry. Right. Wisconsin without dairy has no cheese. And where mm-hmm. would we be then? Yeah. Um and kale, and cranberries, Mm -hmm. and apples. There are, in the U.S., I guess the the U.S. Department of Ag estimates there there are over 100 crops that depend on bee pollination in order for us to eat them at all every Mm. single year. And with us today, and of course, I know I've got this massive patch of chives right outside of my kitchen door. It's about as... You know, it's like eight mm. or ten by by four. Mm-hmm. Nothing but chives because chives take over. And in the fall, when the blossoms are there, the bee pol- the bee population on those chives, I mean, you can hear it from like ten feet, just bzzz, <laughs> you know, going like crazy. Yep. Yep. Really happy, really happy to see mm-hmm. that. So we've got we've got bees being important to our ag economy, to livestock rearing, to our kitchen gardens. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, they're just a beautiful animal. I guess you'd call it an animal? In- and insect, insect. a creature yeah. uh, on our, on our um, landscape. And someone who, who has tied the notion of the beautiful bee with the resourceful and essential bee um, and our landscape is Jessica Manderfeld, who's also known as Jessica Turtle, and who is with us in studio this morning. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Sylvia. Um, you have made this uh, interesting, uh, what would you call it, statement about the intersection of bees and nature and food in your artwork, uh, which is now on exhibit at the Hungry Turtle Gallery Space in Amory, Wisconsin. Um, there, I, I was lucky to attend a reception for the opening of your exhibit earlier in June, and uh, there were loads of us there. 
And one of the things that I found interesting was not only that your uh, exhibit is about how bees look and how beautiful they are, but yours is a really uh, an interesting interdisciplinary and interactive exhibit. Can you explain to us what goes on when you go in to see your artwork on display? So this particular exhibit was um, more to draw attention to how our lives are affected by small things. Uh, in this particular case, it would be uh, bees, honeybees, and both bumblebees as well. Um, when I was doing the research for this particular show, I started noticing there was a lot of information about honeybees, and they're very important. And so I started doing artwork on honeybees and, and looking at um, all the different things that we survive on or we have used throughout the cultural history uh, that are produced by honeybees. But then I started noticing um, there were species of bumblebees that were coming up and for specifically for the state of Wisconsin that were far more impactful than the honeybee itself. So the honeybees are imported and the bumblebees are native. Mm. And then in that research, I found Natural Heritage Working List, which was created by the state of Wisconsin's DNR. And it's an entire list of species that are grouped by endangered, threatened, or special interest. On that list was uh, about 12 different bumblebees that are at, at risk. Uh, hmm. And so my artwork curved and started focusing on them. And you'll see um, on the wall, you'll see uh, the, the two-dimensional artwork that I created. Mm -hmm. And those are all the different species of bumblebees. And then we also included the honeybee as well. And then we also brought in the different products that we use, which would be cosmetic uh, beeswax, or uh, we've used beeswax for art in different forms. And, um, and then we also have um, some tasting items, like a variety of the honeys that the honeybee produces, which was really fun if you got to be there. Thank you for coming. Yes, I did taste that. <laughs> <laughs> we also did mead, which is um, culturally, I mean, meat, people have been making mead for a very long time. And mead is? Mead is honey wine, so it's fermented honey. Um, and it's uh, not not everyone enjoys it, but it's definitely worth giving a try. There's a lot more varieties out there now than there used to be. Mm -hmm. so. You know, one of the things... Um, just so that people can gain a picture mm -hmm. of your artwork. So how would you describe the kind of work that you do? Because it, it's not, it's not like, uh, it's not oils. What, what, what do you, what's the medium that you use? So uh, I use acrylic. I've always pretty much focused on acrylic. Um, and it's, it's built up in layers. And the images that I use, so I'll pick... Uh, for this particular show, I picked the species of bee, mm -hmm. and then I did research on what plants that that particular bee is interested in or would pollinate. And so I gather those, and then I create what I've been calling a 2D assemblage. And it's just a variety of things that have a connected relationship. Okay. And then I create the the main score image, the finished polished image off of that. And it's painted in layers, so I start with a solid black, and then I add the color on top of that and layer and layer and layer. Wow. And it's just, it's just uh, very vibrant. Thank you. Those, uh, the, her artwork tends to be very fine-lined. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I thought about, even as I was taking a look at some of your artwork, uh, was um, the, the fine detail that you often find in pen and ink, you find in your acrylic. And I also thought uh, about the kinds of um, paperwork and canvases that I have seen um, 
in botanical, old-fashioned botanical drawings where there were artists and there were actually scientists who became very, very adept at uh, drawing and painting the herbs that they saw in nature, the flowers, the birds. I, I think if any of you might be familiar with the Audubon work, of the birds uh, across the United States, your artwork reminded me very much of the type of detail and the kind of uh, attention to fine uh, color that you see in those botanicals. And, and that's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to it because I just love um, botanical artwork. And so how big are your canvases or how big are your, is your work? Do you usually work on canvas or do no. you work on paper? Um, I do work. It's called uh, illustration board or Bristol board. So it's a firm uh, pressed paper. Okay. Um, and it's an archival paper. Um, and I, I've used canvas, but what I find it's really difficult as I'm prolific. So it's very difficult to store. So mm. I switched over to this paper material. And it also gives that botanical and softer uh, appeal, I think, um, and it it lends itself to the style of painting and the precision and detail because there's no texture on the surface. Ah, so yeah. Well, that kind of makes sense then. Yeah. Okay, uh, your uh, now how big are your okay. canvases? Uh, or how big is your your are your sheets that you're working on? I typically focus in sixteen by twenty or twenty by thirty, and that's to make it uh, the twenty by thirties are what you'll see in the gallery now. Um, I wanted to make a, a louder statement. Mm. Um, to make the images quite larger, but I typically would stick with a 16 by 20. All right. So it's kind of interesting, Jessica, that you uh, kind of picked a topic and then went into such research about it in order to kind of make it come alive and pertinent, I guess, to all of us here. Um, I, as an artist, I was working for many years and felt that a lot of it was really, no, I don't want to use the word shallow, but it was didn't have the depth I was looking for and it didn't marry all of the other interests I have in my life and uh, moving out to this area moving into the woods and paying attention to the things that are going on around me um, brought m the ideas of, of like looking at things a bit more closely and understanding why I use the images that I do. I never bothered to do that before and now uh, the more that I research and the more that I see how things are interconnected, uh, the more interest I have in it. It drove me through these rabbit holes of, of uh, discovery that were part of the process, I think, made the process all the more worthwhile. Mm. You know, and you talk about intersection, and certainly there is that in your work, because it's not only bees as beautiful, bees as having a huge impact on our environment, but there's also that food association, which, which I guess seems kind of natural when you're thinking about where we live and where you work, because you are the, the creative and marketing director for the Farm Table Foundation, which is that big um, nonprofit renamed recently. Correct. That has um, the ownership of the Farm Table Restaurant. Yes. As, as its core. So w why this, or where did it start, I guess maybe is a better way of saying, wh where did you see or where did you start that inter intersection of art and insects or the research that you do and food? So, especially working where I do at the Farm Table Foundation, um, everything is related to itself like so, and to other things. So the space itself lended the idea and the, the, the concept of senses, and we wanted to drive people into this space uh, to experience things in a way that they would do on a regular basis, which would be honey, like our use of honey. And that 
we wanted to cover all five of our senses and make the experience impactful in a different way. And I don't know if, if everyone agrees with me on this, but galleries can tend to be a little on the uncomfortable side at times. And I wanted to wake up the space and having that, that natural connection between we have the classroom that teaches classes on cooking and then we have uh, the restaurant that provides the food on the table and we have this space in between that we nobody really knows what quite to do with yet. And so we have, uh, I pulled all these things together and in my personal life, food is the center. It's the center of my family, it's the center of my friends and in my career, it's the center and everything stems off of that. So it seemed like a, a natural fit and you entertain people and connect and drive people together using food. And I think by choosing honey and mead as these two examples, we were able to show people that these are things that you depend on as a part of just your social life or your, your entertainment. And did you know that there was all of these varieties mm -hmm. and that all of these plants that we see on a regular basis driving through the countryside make up those flavors, be it a tree or a, or a root plant or vice versa. And then with the mead, it's like it's, it's been part of our history for so long and there isn't necessarily an awareness of it mm -hmm. now. Right. And there's only one mead maker in this area. And I was able to, to reach out to him. Um, and he's going to provide a mead making class. So, like, as I was doing the research. Oh, yay. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. I'll let you know when that is. Um, so, uh, like, while I was doing the research and I'm finding all these products and I'm finding all these experiences that people are having, I'm looking at how how they all relate. And then, I mean, food just seemed like a quite a natural fit. You keep people in the room with this food. Yes. It worked. It worked. <laughs> it certainly did. It was a wonderful reception. Thank you. And as you said, um, you, you reached out to people where they already are comfortable, which is honey. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't know honey? And so you, you enter with honey and then you kind of branch into these things that you may not be quite as aware of. One of the things I really like about your gallery exhibit is that you can walk through it. So it's not just, it's not only things on the wall. There are these pedestals where there are examples of honeycomb and pollen, and you're encouraged to smell these things. So it's great to be able to, to kind of lean over an, an exhibit and actually take a really deep breath and say, oh, I know what, I, I didn't know what that smelled like before. Um, you also at your reception had hives. We did. Yes. And the buzzing of the bees was very prevalent as you kind of walk close to the hives. It was like, whoa, what's in there? And just a little factoid. A, a bee will flap its wings at about 11,000 times per minute. And so the buzzing sound that we're, we all associate with the bee. I was fascinated, I'm always fascinated, by honey and its many colors. Yes. So you have some honey that is, is just barely yellow. Correct. It's just this glorious, almost liquid, well, it almost looks like water practically. Um, amber and then you've got stuff that I mean it's it's just almost pitch black it's so brown and and as you said that's due to those various kinds of flowers that a, that a bee will travel to do you know how far a bee will travel to get to honey uh, or get to the a flower that has any kind of nectar in it I believe in the research it was about 220 miles a day 
um, that they travel that back they and forth, travel back and forth. Like they'll Ooh. stay in an area, but they, how much movement they actually acquire is like about 220 miles total. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was blown away by that. And then the, uh, there's two th- to about 2000 different plant or flowers that they pollinate in a day. One particular bee. Really? And they only stay full for 45 minutes. So they uh-huh. have, yeah. So they'll pack in, pack in, and pack in, and they eat enough, and then they're only sustained for forty-five minutes, and then they're starving. So they have to really? keep going, keep going, yeah. So it, it's the honeybee where that in the U.S. anyway that we tend to harvest the honey from. Yes. Even though other bees may make a nectar, <clears throat> it's not harvestable Correct. the way that it is for the honeybee. Um. So they, they gather the nectar, which is the liquid part, right? Correct. And then they also have their legs covered with pollen. Yeah, pollen pockets. What is What do they do with the pollen? They bring the pollen back, and the pollen is actually what feeds their babies. Uh, so it, the pollen turns into the nectar. Oh. Um, and then it feeds their babies. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So in a hive, and I, I know that you're not a beekeeper. We're I'm talking not a about the yeah. art yes. and the intersection, but... Um, the, the bee that many of us think about, there are a couple of them, the bumblebee and the honeybee. Correct. So what interesting things did you come across as far as the honeybee goes? Oh, so there's this product that I'm now doing tons of research on, which is the propolis. It's, it's their defense mechanism. So they protect their hive from bacteria infections or any kind of infections, uh, with this propolis. So if a mouse gets into the hive and dies, they will completely cover it with propolis and it's and I actually have some samples of the propolis there and it smells amazing and it's this really dark color and it'll always smell different uh for each each hive um and it'll always be a different color uh it's quite amazing and you can use it we use it as an antibacterial what what is the consistency how does it feel the texture of propolis it's very kind of uh like wax but a little stickier so if anybody has ever casted bronze uh it's a lot like the wax that we use for bronze casting so okay. it's really dense, uh, but it's it's quite amazing. So so it's an antibacterial that also serves as a as a physical barrier. It does. It yeah. sounds like yes. You know, you talked about um, propolis and its its ability to help with that antibacterial kind of uh, defense, and again and again we hear about the um, the many ways in which bees are being attacked mm-hmm. in our environment. Is there anything that you came upon uh, w- relative to that? So for the bubble bee specifically, um, it's the way they build their nest that we are potentially unaware of. Um, they, are, they tend to prefer grass fields and they have their nests underground. So if you think about the tilling practice, they're gone. Um, and then they also like down logs. And so clearing clearing all the logs uh, in the fall or in the wintertime is very harmful for them because that's where they are. Ah. Uh, they like dead trees. Um, so And they also will take over a bird's nest. So leaving the bird's nest there is better. I collect them, so I should probably stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, they will build their nests um, in, in bird's nests and in uh, mouse holes and, and things like that. So. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. I do not. Oh, so if I say to my husband, no, no, leave it as it is. Yeah. We're actually in a conservation mode. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, yeah. We, we are experiencing all across the nation, it still seems, a lot of beehive collapse. Yes. 
And I was just on a couple of websites over the last, you know, day or so. And my understanding from an organization you may be very, very aware of uh, called Pollinate Minnesota, Mm -hmm. which is just across the border from us here in Polk County, um, that the Minnesota beekeepers are experiencing a 50% hive collapse every single year. They're losing 50% of their hives every single year. And I would suspect that that's uh, uh, something that a lot of people are experiencing. regardless of what state they live in, uh, for a number of reasons. One is the incidence of things like varroa mites, yes, which attack bees. And certainly there's a lot of um, research that's going on right now to see if they can actually develop varroa mite-resistant bees. Uh, but it's also about the disappearance of those flowers yes, along so. the ditches. And disappearance of their ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have the flowers, if you don't have the, the plants, and if you're spraying pesticides. Very much so, yes. That, that is one of the arguments that um, is relatively uncomfortable to have sometimes. But the chemicals that are being sprayed affect all of the bee species, be it sweat bees, honeybees, or bumblebees. And the introduction of non-native species is a big issue as well. Uh, by that, what do you mean by non-native species? So they're bringing in non-native bumblebees to help with pollination in hothouses and stuff. And oh. Yeah. And so they're actually bringing in viruses that affect our native species. Oh, so we're importing our problems? We're importing our problems. We do that, don't we? We do. Yeah. We, yeah. We, it seems that we've done that again and again. And again. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your background as far as... as cooking goes yeah what is it Woo. um i have been a pastry chef i have been um an very eccentric home chef um i've worked in i'll remember that you said yeah, that i am very eccentric <laughs> um i have worked in restaurants since i was about 14 years old so i have a lot of back of house experience and um i have also been tr- like highly trained as a barista as well so i have front of house experience too you know I, I know this is a, a, a bird walk here, but that whole thing of barista, yeah, it's just fascinating. It it's is. like, I'd love to take a class. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the latte art. Uh, it allowed me at you know age 19 to express myself with coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, what about, and what about your training as far as art goes? So I did go to art school up in, uh, I lived in Duluth for about seven years. And uh, I was in studio management and metal fabrication. Um, I've been an illustrator my entire life. It was just a natural fit, and I wanted to go to college to learn something beyond that. And I used my illustrative skills uh, to do concept design, which was quite fun. Um, It stretched, and you can actually see the results now in the scientific illustration where the fine lines come from and the perfection, uh, the kind of measured and calculated approach to illustrating, which uh, I'm very lucky to have a wonderful hand control and I've been able to do line work um, that is similar to a computer's ability which is something I'm very grateful for and you can certainly see that in Jessica Manderfell's art exhibit now at the the sensory exhibit hall at the farm table foundation running uh, it started uh, let's see the the gallery uh, exhibit started June 9th and now runs till Uh, it'll be coming down August 31st Oh, great. So you have all summer to come up 
Visit that gallery space, enjoy a meal or two at the Farm Table Restaurant, and visit the farms in this area. Please do. Yeah, visit the farms. When you take a look at your exhibit right now, Jessica, what is it that, I guess you can tell us about what's available in the way of reprints or sales. Sure, absolutely. So um, all of the originals on the wall are available. Um, and that money will actually be used to fund what we're calling the Natural Heritage Project. And that is similar exhibits that will be put on by uh, other artists that I'll be organizing. Um, so, so please come and help support that. And we also have um, 16 by 20 and 20 by 30 prints available of each image as well. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah. I'll tell you, these things are just, just gorgeous. Thank you. So as you did your research into bees... And you, you, it was the honeybee, and it was the bumblebee. Correct. All right. Um, anything interesting about bumblebees? I know you told us that they actually um, they nest in the ground. Are they a hive bee, or are they individuals? They're both, actually. So some, some of the species are hive, and some are individual. Um, but the most interesting thing I found, well, I shouldn't say the most interesting, but kind of the most charming, is that their feet stink. Can you say <laughs> that again? About... Yes. Bumblebees? <laughs> Bumblebees have stinky feet. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> <laughs> is there a purpose to that? Um, it is, actually. It's quite fascinating. So they go into the flower, and they, they get the nectar, and they leave the scent behind. And then another bee coming knows that that's been pollinated. Oh, it's like, hey, I've already been here. Yeah. Don't bother. Yep. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the small, small little things you would never guess, so. Yeah, yeah. And a bumblebee is about what size? How would I describe it? So they range in size, actually. So the larger ones that you see that are really fuzzy, um, they're probably about an inch um, by maybe a quarter of an inch wide. Right. They're, they're, they're quite large and plump. Those are most people's favorite. And then they range all the way down. So those are all females. And then the smallest ones, which would be about a quarter of an inch wide uh, by a quarter of an inch long, they're maybe a little bit bigger than that, but they're very small. Uh, those are the males, and they're they're drones. They're relatively useless. Sorry, um, but the the females do all of the work, and they do all of the raising. They do all of the the building, and then we have these guys that go out. And you, if you look closely, the, my my best advice is actually to go into a prairie and kneel down, and just look through the top of the flowers, and you'll see all of the different sizes flying around, and you'll hear it as well. Yeah. Now, do bumblebees sting? They can. Um, it is not likely that they will, um, but they can sting a couple of times. Um, okay. But they don't have the kind of venom that we're used to in wasps. Wasps are usually the ones that are most painful and they're very aggressive, but you don't really need to fear a bumblebee. We also have, um, as part of the exhibit, we have bee boxes that have been hand-painted by an artist called Christy Swartz. She's uh, located in St. Paul. Um, those are ready and set up to be put on land and to be started. Um, and with that, we are also having um, a speaker come, Michael Bush. Um, he's an expert beekeeper and educator. And uh, we are offering a free ticket to that event with the purchase of the bee box. How cool. To get started. Yeah. Oh, wow. So when is that? Do you know? Uh, it's August 25th, I believe. All right. So there's still time to kind of keep your eye out. There is. And look for that. Well, Jessica... If people want to find out more about your exhibit, um, how to get a hold of you, where can they go? Uh, so we have a Natural Heritage Working List uh, 
website setup, and the address is uh, naturalheritageproject.org. And that is a running list of all the exhibits that are coming up and background information on the artists involved. And then you can also just stop in at the Farm Table Foundation. I'm there most of the time. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.